Hey, welcome back. This is Henry, the Skeptic Disciple. We're glad you're here. It's been a bit. I know I say that often. The truth is that this podcast project snowballed unexpectedly over the last year or so. We started it to get conversations around faith and God and scripture going. Uh, These are largely conversations that are not as easy to have in a church setting. But also, we started it because during the last, you know, few years now, many of us have not been attending church physically as regularly as we used to. Regardless, I am excited to continue to do this podcast. I'm just still shocked at how much this has resonated with some of you. I'm also excited to announce that we have been graciously invited to our alma mater, Pacific Union College, also known as PUC. To speak for a Vespers at the end of the winter quarter in March of this year. And that really means a lot to us. Uh, we're really looking forward to it, along with a few other new side projects related to the Skeptic Disciple podcast that we will be launching this year. But that's enough for housekeeping and announcements regarding the podcast. This episode, we particularly dive into the story of the Exodus. We've been talking about it for for a few episodes. But here we will focus on the story of when God plans to move into the Israelite camp. God longs to be with the people. He's freed from the land of slavery. We cover everything from the covenant meal, the story of the golden calf, and the shattering of the Ten Commandments. It's an interesting and a difficult story in many ways. Um, It reflects the complexities of a God-human relationship. I do want to mention that we do speak God's name out loud in this episode. We understand that for some this may seem disrespectful, but we did our best to speak the name as sparingly as possible and always to differentiate the God of Israel from other gods. And although it goes without saying, We also read this story from our own Christian standpoint. We don't claim that anything we say is absolute truth. We are bringing our questions to the text, understanding that we may not see the full picture from our perspective alone. Now, with that being said, we're glad you're here along for the ride. So here we go. Sorry, guys. Um, But after finishing the Ten Commandments... I don't know if we realized what we were getting into when we started. We originally didn't plan on doing the Ten Commandments. We were going to just sum them up in one episode. (laughs) I feel like here they are. One thing that's important to remember, the Ten Commandments is written in Exodus chapter 20. This is like God speaking them. And we normally think of them as like written on stone tablets. And this hasn't happened yet in the story. It happens afterwards. So actually, you know, if you don't mind, we can we can start on Exodus chapter 24, verse 9. Because after God speaks to them the law, the Ten Commandments, and then that additional sections are in, in the following chapters after Exodus 20, you get to this portion in Exodus chapter 24 where Moses goes up the mountain. So if you remember, like at the beginning, before God gives them the law or speaks the law, He calls all the people to to Mount Sinai and they're all at the foot of the mountain, but none of them are allowed to go onto it uh, or to cross a certain boundary. God starts speaking and the people hear his voice and it's like super loud. It's described like a trumpet sound 
and there's like fire on top of the mountain and all kinds of stuff is happening. Uh, very uh, striking and terrifying, I think. But at the end of this, Exodus chapter 24, starting at verse 9, has, has this kind of a setup to what happens next. So Exodus 24 verse 9 says, Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Anadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And it was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hands. So they saw God and they ate and drank. So it kind of sets up this idea. God speaks the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law or what's written in Exodus here. Then they have a sacrifice and Moses sprinkles the blood of the sacrifice upon the people. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant that God, the Lord your God is making with you. And following this sprinkling of the blood of the, the sacrifice of the covenant, then Moses goes up with 70, one, two, three. <laughs> so there's a total of 74 people that go up. And these 74 people, it says, saw God. And they have a meal with him, essentially. They saw yeah. God, yeah. they ate, and they drank. and. As I'm reading this, so ancient covenants were often sealed with some sort of sacrifice of blood, but always followed by a meal. You share a meal with whoever you're making a covenant with. And here we have uh, this idea where it's not just Moses that sees God. It's like 74 people of Israel that see God and they have a meal with them, kind of sealing the deal. Like this is we're at the end now. We have completed and made this covenant between us. But it doesn't end there. Then it says in verse 12, the Lord said to Moses specifically, he says, come up to me on the mountain and be there. And I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments, which I have written that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he saw, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has any difficulty, let him go to them. And then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. And verse 16 says, Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it, the entire mountain, for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So we get this idea. They, they seal the deal. They have a meal with God, these 74 people. And then God says specifically to Moses, come up to the mountain. And God calls them up further, telling him, hey, I have tablets of stones and law of commandments that I have written so that you can teach them. And there's two people that go up further. It's uh, Moses and his assistant, Joshua. And they go up further up the mountain and tell the rest, you know, hey, stay behind. And uh, Aaron and her are with you guys. 
Uh, if anything happens, you know, come up to them. So basically, like they delegate their responsibilities off because they know they're going to be going up with God and drop on a mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So that's kind of additional to like the whole we made a covenant. Now it's God specifically going to give Moses his instructions. And these instructions don't just include the Ten Commandments, like the stone tablets that we normally think of, but it goes on to give specific instructions on the construction of like the sanctuary or this tent or this, this, you know, this portable temple, I guess I can call it, that is going to be in the center of the Israelite camp. God literally is making plans to move in with them. And I know that you've done some thinking and reading on this stuff. I don't know if you have uh, any like highlights on that stuff. Yeah. Do you want to talk about what that that temple looks like? Because it has very special parameters to it. Oh, the uh, dimensions. Not necessarily dimensions, but it, it, it does have like, I don't know if you want to call them. Partitions? Yeah, I was going to call them zones, but you get it. <laughs> zones. <laughs> Different rooms. Uh-huh. So, so God goes on for uh, quite a few chapters, I think. Yeah, they they can be lengthy and they don't seem very important if you're a casual reader. Like, what does this have to do with, you know, like me or even church? Like, you know, it's not like a churches these days are built after these parameters. Right. Yeah. Right. I think I think the important thing for now to mention about the tabernacle is in trying to decipher its its intent more than every individual piece of it because we have to remember I, I i don't know how aware moses and the israelites were at this time but the whole thing god is trying to do here from day one with abram was trying to restore humanity back to its original intent and design which was in the garden right and something 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 you'll see in the bible happen repeatedly is every story every event everything that takes place seems to be a representation of something that happens or exists in either a a heavenly dimension or in an original design you know paul kind of talks about it the apostle paul he'll he'll talk about how things are like like a mirror reflection like a shadow of something real, something greater. And this, this, this whole temple situation is, is one of the first big ones we really see because everything, everything in it, everything around it is supposed to be representative of the garden, which, you know, we started skeptic disciple talking about the garden you have. And I've, I've been reading some, um, commentary from theologians on this there's a little bit of debate about it but it's interesting to note nonetheless like first of all the ark of the covenant and certain images and artistic artworks within it are very representative of the garden like you have like fig trees and grapes and cherubim protecting an entrance and whatnot but you also have like a a lamplight which some theologians compare to the tree of life and you have the ark of the covenant itself 
which a lot compared to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Especially similar in the way that if you access it, you die. If you touch it and open it, you literally die. And we haven't gotten to that yet. <laughs> but okay. But spoiler alert, they put the tablets inside of the thing. And then if you open the thing, which gives you the information on the law, you, you die. Um, it's weird. <laughs> I I don't think I've ever uh, made the connection between between those two things. Yeah, there so, is a lot of artwork in the tabernacle. Yeah, and and most of it points back to the garden, and and the biggest thing, the biggest thing I'm not mentioning that you already mentioned, obviously, is in the 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 in this whole blueprint, you're supposed to be able to find God in the middle, like He dwells there. He lives there. You can go in there and say hello. <laughs> and I mean, that's that's basically what was happening in the garden. That's like right in the in the smack middle. He would show up in the dew of the morning and, you know, do whatever he did with Adam and Eve, you know, have crumpets and tea and talk. I don't I don't know. <laughs> um, Some manna. Yeah. You know, I don't know. But but that's the thing. And it's it's restorative. It's it's at least. I don't know if I want it, it's symbolic mm. of like, you know, I know we can't do it like we did it in the garden, but here, like, look, I still really want this. Mm. And I need you to know that. I still want to be in your presence. I still want you to be in my presence. And if all we can have right now is like a portable tent. And I show up and maybe you guys don't fully get what this is like you will. And I'm, I'm trying to restore everything to the way it was. I think that's the craziest thing. Cause you think of the image of God they have at that moment, which is this crazy fire on the mountain. <laughs> this incredibly loud sound that is God's voice. And then he says, I want to live with you in a tent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's kind of if you really there's a way to look at it that's almost kind of romantic yeah. like it's almost like when you're like you know you have a wife and it's like you, you give your vows like for richer or poorer and you think of eden as the richer aspect of it and then you have the flip side it's like okay now we're stuck in the desert and we just barely survived the egyptians but it's like i still want to be with you yeah it's strange. It's not something you would expect from a god. And then we have this kind of crazy episode of the golden calf. Essentially, while Moses and Joshua are up on the mountain uh, for 40 days and 40 nights, this is a long time, the people start wondering, you know, whether... Moses is coming or not you know they like they notice he's taking a long time to come down the mountain and the people go to Aaron and say to him make us gods that shall go before us for uh this Moses this man who brought us up out of Egypt we don't know we essentially don't know where he's at and uh I I mean Sure, it took a long time. I mean, they know they know he's up the mountain. Yeah. Yeah, like we know where he is. We just know he hasn't come back yet. 
and I don't know if it's like anxiety or like what what it is that they're like we need we need to we need to make a god you know <laughs> like forty days before forty or you know less than I guess forty days prior or however long it's been since they've actually heard God's voice and seen the fire on the mountain like they're like let's make a god um, which makes no sense to me but this is where yeah, we're yeah here's where I want a little little bit of clarification henry like are they attempting to create a new god um when they create the golden calf or are they are they attempting to make a representation of the god they experienced this is i think this is where it it might get kind of kind of hairy (laughs) um the reason being that it makes no sense okay like even if i was there even if like i didn't know who this god was but i saw what happened on the mountain and i heard god's voice i would not think to myself that i can create a god right and right yeah i i almost feel like what they've witnessed and understood is that god has a sort of a a, a very special connection with their leader Moses, like literally Moses talks to God. Um, it, this God got us out of you know the land of slavery, land of Egypt has led us here. They've seen the like the story of the the sea uh, crossing on dry land. They've at this point, I think I believe they've already experienced you know manna and all all these kinds of things. They've experienced Moses being in constant contact with God, so they know God exists. But their connection to God is gone. Does that make sense? I, I think I understand. They, they're, Keep going. Yeah, like their their connection to God is gone. Like Moses is the link, the connecting link between God and the people. He goes up the mountain. God tells him what to tell the people. He comes back down. He tells them what's happening. You know, we, we they're, they're a mediator. Yeah, we continually have this action of Moses going to God and coming back and telling the people what to do. And then the people are like, I don't know what to do. Or, you know, they're freaking out about something. And Moses goes to God again and then figures out a solution comes back. Like, that's what's happening. Not only that, but also when Moses moves, it's because God told him to move and to go somewhere. And, you know, God goes with them. Um, so the idea I'm going to present right now is, is I, I can't say anything of this stuff is like 100% fact. 100% true. But just judging by the fact that these people have actually seen God in a mountain and they've been in this relationship with God as with Moses as their mediator, it only makes sense that they're like, well, Moses is gone. He's been gone for a very long time. We've been walking through the, the wilderness and, you know, God's been leading us and we don't, we no longer have this mediator. How is God supposed to move along with us? Because all I know is God is present wherever Moses goes. And <laughs> there's this there's this kind of idea that the golden calf wasn't necessarily meant to be a god. Um, and there's this kind of ancient connection between the God of Israel, which we now know him in the book of Exodus as uh, I am that I am is what he tells Moses is his name. Um, whereas Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and anyone before them had no clue uh, what this God's name actually was. His identity seems to be revealed specifically to Moses in connection with this mission that God is sending him 
to Egypt for, to, to get his people out of slavery, essentially. And he says, I am that I am. This is a moment when we know God's name. Before that, we don't know God's name. God, the word God appears as Elohim. Um, Abraham, you know, will mention El Shaddai or El Elyon. El, 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 El is essentially the main uh, God. The name mm-hmm. is just El. And this has a, an ancient connection to like ancient Babylonian religion where El is the chief god amongst the Babylonian pantheon of gods, essentially, if I can call it that. And El travels on a bull. Like, that is how he moves around. So in many places, instead of seeing like an idol or a statue of El, what you see is a statue of the bull that he rides on. It's a symbol of strength and also mobility. You know, like the chief god rides okay. a bull. And this is how he moves around. Like, this is what he's connected to. And I think, and I think there's, there's been a few, you know, scholars have made the connection that perhaps Abraham is interacting with, without necessarily knowing specifics about him, doesn't know specifically what his identity is in terms of a name, but rather Abraham comes out of the land of Ur, which is in Babylon, following the story of the Tower of Babel and where God decides I'm going to make something new, something different, something good out of this family of Abraham. And he comes down and Abraham is a devout follower of God. And God appears to him and says, follow me. Like we're going to go to this place. I'm going to lead you to essentially, you know, the land of promise. And Abraham just gets up and, and he leaves and it's always been kind of striking to me like how does he how does he even know god you know like how does he what does he know of him and it's quite likely that all abraham knows is there is a god there's a chief god named el and he this god shows up to him and he automatically puts the two together and it's not till generations later when God says to Moses, I am the God of your fathers, you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as like, I am that same God that they were worshiping or following, and I was blessing them all along the way, but I'm not actually necessarily what Abraham might have thought I was. Like, mm. I spoke to him within his framework of like understanding of the gods. But now I'm actually revealing myself to you. My name is, this is, this is who I am. This is my identity. I am who I am. And so it's quite possible that this kind of thinking has just kind of calmed down throughout the generations. And these people are just also beginning to realize the true identity of this God. And maybe when we don't see Moses anymore. We don't see this mediator, like intermediate person that goes between God and us. And that all along has Moses is with God. So wherever Moses goes, God goes, he's no longer with us. What do we do? Well, he's taking a long time to come down 40 days and 40 nights. You know, I don't know if that's like, <laughs> I don't know if that's accurately like 
said like it's actual four days and 40 nights because 40 days and 40 nights is just seems like symbolic in the bible for a very long time to the point where it just feels like it's (laughs) it's like a week on skeptic disciple it's like a week on skeptic disciple (laughs) like we like you (laughs) you say you're gonna come back and then like you go and you leave for such a long time that people might think you're not coming back anymore that's like essentially what 40 days and 40 nights refers to in in scripture like it's just it's this way of saying like they were gone for such a long time we had no idea what was happening anymore Mm. and so to me it would kind of make sense that these people would want to make this golden animal of some sort that then this god could essentially symbolically write on this connection to god that is not like an actual connection but in their understanding they're like this is how we understand the god's work and this is not necessarily a god but it's a symbol it's the it's the connection it's the physical thing that we can touch that connects us to god like god needs Mm. this thing to ride around with us and also i think it kind of points to the fact that they might have been doing the same thing with moses do you know what I mean? Like he was, yeah, yeah. He was their he, symbolic bull. He was the symbolic bull. Um, yeah. So all of a sudden, he's not there anymore. They, they just, they just fall back on what they physically know. It's not that different from, and I don't mean offense to anyone who listens. I can just speak from my experience, but I, I used to be Catholic, and that's that's kind of how it works with the priest. I mean, you you connect to God through the priest, and I mean, I mean, it's 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 at the point where should a priest excommunicate you, you essentially have no more connection to God. Um, so the the idea is not that alien to me. Yeah. But I mean, if you just think about it, like it's just a progressive understanding of God and God is working within the framework that they understand as much as possible. And yeah, I mean, you'd say from a Catholic perspective, I could just say from a general Christian perspective, a lot of times we think of like pastors or ministers or what they say as literally our connection to God. And, mm. uh, and we're essentially doing the same thing. Anytime that we place that level of importance on anything whether it be physical or person whatever as if that was our direct connection with god we are i think failing to see what is truly happening Mm. and here unfortunately aaron had gone up to see god and aaron is moses's brother aaron kind of fails here because after they ask him to like hey let's make this golden calf uh, Aaron is just like, okay, let's, let's go for it. <laughs> uh, he's like, you know, take off your gold rings and, and like whatever jewelry you have that you brought with you from Egypt, uh, bring it out to me because when they left Egypt, they, they were actually given things as they were leaving. Like, you know, um, they don't leave empty handed. So all the people take off their jewelry, they bring it to him and, uh, he forms a mold and he casts the image of, you know, the calf. And then he says, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, uh, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. 
And that's kind of weird. Um, because after Aaron takes the gold rings and the jewelry and he makes the golden calf, he says, he builds an altar and then he says, tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. Um, and the Lord is cap, all caps, meaning literally tomorrow is a festival to Yahweh. Mm, mm. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and then they rose up to party, essentially. Uh, So again, here, kind of like there's this confusion about who God is. Yeah. Aaron doesn't seem to have like such a big conflict within himself about doing this. He's just like, yeah, let's go for it. And he wants to appease the people. I mean, and I, you know, I've I've always read the story with the sense of pity because I mean, pity for him and pity for the people, because when, when I read it, I, I genuinely think they're just trying to connect like with this God who delivered them. Yeah. And they don't, they don't really know how. And Aaron, I think he sees that and he wants to give them that. And so he's like, I can give them this. I can let them have this. And maybe maybe that'll be good enough for now. Um, it's, again, this kind of just this confusion of like, does God ride a golden calf? Maybe he doesn't. But Aaron's like, that's what they know. So I'm just going to go along with it <laughs> and do it. And then we'll celebrate a festival to Yahweh. And I guess it should be okay. You know, I don't know what's happening, what's going through his mind, but he's thinking maybe like we'll compromise here. And it's like, should I tell them that it's not the same God? Like, that's not how God works. Or should I just go along with them and then just like make it a festival to Yahweh and offer sacrifices? I'm sure that'll be fine. (laughs) Yeah. And so maybe this is what's happening. And then the Lord says to Moses, you know, he notices what's happening. He goes, you know, get down there like as soon as you can. Uh, the people that you you came with, the people that you brought out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely and they have been quick to turn aside from what I commanded them. They have, you know, made themselves an image of a calf, which if you remember the Ten Commandments, you're not supposed to make an image of anything. And they have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And, and of you, of Moses, I will make out a great nation. Uh, so God's just really upset. God does not see this as them sacrificing to him. He doesn't see it as an act of worship of him. Um, but he's just like, they made an image, which I told them not to do. And they are worshiping this thing as if, as if that's me. And it's yeah. not. And now he wants to kill them all. And he's so like angry and upset that he's just like, you know what? Let's just, just do away with them. <laughs> and I'll start all over. I'll start all over with you, Moses. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So... He went through a lot of trouble to get these people out of slavery. Yeah. Like, like, I mean, basically this story has been going on for hundreds of years now, you know, back with Abram and then his descendants. And I mean, the whole, like, 
the whole spiel with like Jacob and Isaac and now we're here. So every time I read this part and he's just really quick to say, never mind, let's just start over with Moses. I get flashbacks to um, Noah's Ark. Yeah. And start over again. That whole, you know what? Like, screw it. Start over. Like, we'll just, we'll start over with this guy. It, this, this is, this is a cool guy. I like this guy. Let's start over with this guy. And I run into the same issue because I always see it as like, the issue is not these particular people. It's, it's the fact that they're people like, and they're, they're human mm-hmm. and humans are always gonna mess it up. Mm. And and yeah, he's right. I mean, I just told these people the law. I just gave it to them. They agreed. This was the contract. I thought we understood one another. And they they messed it up. And they did. They messed it up. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying, like, that's that's what we do. Like, it's I, I mean, we can't avoid that. Like, that's what we do. We we mess up. And when I read this part, it's difficult for me because I'm like, I've always understood him to be someone who, who acknowledges that. And so he offers mercy and grace. And in this situation, Moses has to step in and ask for mercy and grace on, on the people's behalf. Um, and it just, it throws me off a bit. <laughs> that it's not innately coming from God mm. in this story. And I'm still I'm still trying to make either sense or make peace with that aspect of the story. Yeah, I mean I don't I don't automatically I think should should feel wrong for God to say this. And I think we initially always think like, why would God even say that? Like, didn't you just go through all of that? Didn't you like deal with the whole 10 plagues and a hard hearted, you know, Egyptian Pharaoh that they didn't want to let, let them go. And you just dealt with like so many other things up to this point. Why is it that now you're just like, Oh, forget it. You know, <laughs> like, I'm done with this. But at the same time, is this possibly a test for Moses? Is God saying, you know, just, just, you know, we'll just, we'll get rid of it all. Like I'll consume them all and I'll just, I'll start over with you, Moses. And Moses could have said, yeah, sure. You know, let's, let's do that. Like I'm up down with that. Like they're a headache to deal with. Like, you know, this, we've been doing this, this long, but Moses instead is number one is willing and able to speak his mind to God because he actually opposes what God is suggesting that they do. And he's like, why, why does your, why, why, why do you want to do that? Why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Like these are the people that you brought out of Egypt with, you know, great power. Why should then the Egyptians say it was, with evil intent that you brought him out here to kill him in the mountains and consume him from the earth. Like turn from your fierce wrath. Moses says, change your mind and do not bring disaster upon your people. He asks God to remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel 
uh, who, you know, God had swore to them uh, by his own self, saying to them, I'll multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to you and your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. And upon hearing this, God it says, and the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he had planned to bring on his people. There are a couple of things here that are happening that I don't think we're normally used to allowing in our minds God to do. Uh, number one, that God is angry and he is upset. And number two, that God actually changes his mind. Hmm. I, I, I get what you're saying. And I, I do acknowledge that he has emotions and that he can change his mind. I mean, I actually kind of love the latter. Um, I've always loved the idea of being able to reason with God. I think, I think what gets me is there are so many verses about when it comes to his emotions, about him being slow to anger. <laughs> You know, and I, I look at this story and I'm like, bro, that was not slow. That was like, that was really fast. That was like ultra fast. <laughs> like, yeah, like you got there quick. Um, so, so when you're saying that it might be a test to Moses, I, for some reason, I have not considered that. And that might make sense. Um. Of course, the only thing after that is I wonder what would happen if Moses failed the test. Uh, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but that's <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's it's God. Just is it? I don't know. There's no like straight up answer for that. I can't tell you that that's what's happening. Um, oh yeah, it's a theory. I understand. Yeah, and, it, it's, know, it's interesting nonetheless. Yeah, just just as in the story of the flood, it says that God essentially regrets creating humanity. Like he is, I think the idea here is like humans are so like hard headed and like we we just always oppose God, even when it's something good for us. Like it just seems like we we're in a constant state of wrestling with God, if I can call it that. Mm. And God is like up to here a couple of times. And especially here, he's ready to just burn him up and start over again. And Moses decides to appeal to God's character and who he is. Like he's trying to remind him, you know, like, you know, what are people going to say about you, God, that you just, you know, you, you brought them out here just to kill them. Like, what's the point here? It just makes no sense, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I think in, in one way, it, it also shows that Moses is a good leader. Like, he's like, he's like, no, like one, he knows how to appeal to someone's like conscience, especially God's conscience here. And then secondly, that he's, he's willing to kind of stand up for it, stand up for someone. And that's, that's part mm -hmm. of just like Moses personality from day one, like Moses standing up for the guy that's getting beaten, you know, it's just like, no, we're not going to do that. Like he has a very quick reaction to that. And so God changes his mind. And that's another one that's difficult for people to 
kind of understand because we also think of like God is unchanging. He's always the same. Yet God changes his mind. Like he decides to do one thing in, you know, the heat of anger. And then he is dissuaded by Moses. And we get God changes his mind. Moses is like relieved. God is not going to burn him up. So I think we're on, you know, we're on good footing now, but we still have this question of like, well, okay, what's going to happen next? Cause the people are down there worshiping this calf, sacrificing to it, celebrating a festival to Yahweh, but the calf at the same time, like there's like this weird thing that's happening and Moses has to go back down. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Moses turns down, he goes down a mountain, uh, carrying the two tablets of the covenant that God had given him. And it says that the tablets that were, they were written on both sides, written on the front and the back tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God engraved upon them. And Joshua is with him the whole time. When Joshua hears the noise of the people as they're, you know, shouting or whatever they're doing, he turns to Moses and he's like, there's, there's war in the camp. <laughs> like that's the noise yeah. of war. Um, so he, Joshua being Moses, assistant, he, he doesn't know what's happening. He's kind of outside of the, the conversation that Moses has with God. And, you know, Moses has to tell him like, you know, that's, that, that's not the sound of war. It's the sound of revelers that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf, and the people dancing, Moses' anger burns hot. Uh, so this is not God's anger burning anymore. Moses' anger is burning. And I have, I have this weird like feeling that God sees what's happening. Moses can't see what's happening from the top of the mountain. God's anger burns hot. And he's like, I'm just going to start over with them. Moses changes his mind. But it's not until Moses actually sees what's happening that then he has that same reaction. And he throws the tablets that he's carrying uh, from his hands and he, he breaks them at the foot of the mountain. So upset at what's happening. And he takes a calf that they had made and he burns it uh, and he grinds it to a powder and he scatters it on the water and he makes the Israelites drink it. And then he goes up to Aaron and he's like, what the heck, bro? Like, what, why did this people, what, what did this people do to you that <laughs> yep. you have brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron says, uh, you know, don't unleash your anger on me, essentially. Like, you know them, you know the people that they are bent on evil. And, you know, they said to me, make us gods who, sh who shall go before us. As for this Moses, we don't know, you know, what's become of him. And so I told him, you know, if you have gold, you know, take it off, bring it to me and I'll throw it in the fire. And out came this calf. <laughs> and uh, when Moses sees <laughs> like people, a pizza. Yeah, it's just like I threw it in. This is what came out. <laughs> I, I think he conveniently leaves out the fact that he make he made a mold. <laughs> to shape right. it like he conveniently like removes himself from the equation of like actually making it he's like all i did was like melt the gold <laughs> and this came out like 
that was not me. What the heck? Where did this come from? But uh, yeah, they get there. I, the, they have the calf and then Moses as he's having this conversation I guess with Aaron he sees that people are running wild uh, because you know Aaron had let them run wild and Moses stands in the gate the gate of the camp now and he says uh, to the people you know he says who is on the Lord's side come to me and all the sons of Levi gathered around him he said to them thus says the Lord the God of Israel put your sword on your side each of you Go back and forth from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill your brother, your friend, and your neighbor. And the sons of Levi did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 of the people fell on that day. And Moses said, Today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of a son or a brother, and so have brought a blessing on yourselves this day. And I think this is the part that's like, like you read it and you're just like stunned because it's like, yeah, you told God not to burn the people and then you come down and you feel the anger and you throw the tablets and you grind the thing to dust and, uh, (laughs) and then you, give peop- the people an ultimatum right who is on Yahweh's side and again we get the sense of two things one he's like incredibly angry and two there are people in the camp who are possibly thinking uh i get the sense that there's people in the camp who are not like fully not into it not into this whole thing they're mm-hmm. like that is not God. That is like some older idea that you've been carrying and you don't want to let go of. And you are placing your faith in physical things. And so Moses says, who's on God's side? Who's on, uh, come to me. And so, I mean, who, whose other side could they possibly be? I'm like, I feel like this is a moment where people have sort of a choice to make. Okay, maybe I messed up so they could still kind of change their mind. But at the end of the day, what happens is kind of, I, I want to say gruesome. The Bible specifically says that all the sons of Levi, of the you know the tribe of Levi, one of the sons of Jacob, gather around Moses. And Moses tells them, you know, get your sword. And they do exactly what Moses tells them to do. And about 3,000 people die. It's it seems like it, that's that's crazy. That's a lot of people. It, it's just crazy because God literally just told them that one of the laws, one of the commandments is thou shalt not kill. Um, but here Moses goes through the camp with the Levites and they kill people from their, like their own camp. It's not even enemies. These are like people that they, they brought out of Egypt. They're just like, Nope. Yeah. yeah. Um, you don't deserve to live essentially. And in so doing, they break a commandment though. Moses has shattered them on the mountain. And I don't know if that's symbolic or what, but it's just like these people have only heard them possibly, you know, a very long time ago. 
he breaks the only copy, physical copy that he has that he could read to the people to teach him. And yeah, instead, I never got why he did that. I, you know, like, like God, God just gave you that. Why? Why'd you break it? <laughs> I think it's because it's a. I think he understood it as a breaking of the covenant. Like God made so a covenant he had to with us. Break the actual covenant to just symbolically show that they broke the covenant. Like I don't know. I don't know. It's a little dramatic for my taste. I think when when you're upset, you just like you're just like whatever. Like he's just like I give up. You know. I get that. I get that. I I feel like that's what happens. Like I don't think there's a wall for him to punch. (laughs) It's like (laughs) throw. I don't know what Josh was thinking. Like, bro, (laughs) you know. Yeah. Uh, But like he's he's in a rage. And he like they kill three thousand people, and it's this horrible thing I think to experience in the camp, you know, after just having done this covenant with God, and the ironic thing is that in verse twenty nine of Exodus thirty two, Moses says to the Levites who just killed three thousand people, he says he said, uh, "Today you've ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord." <laughs> I was just like. I don't know. I mean, through my mind, I'm just thinking like ordination, like the process of ordination. We talked to women's ordination, yeah. just like yeah, it's you, a very you, different type of ordination. You think of it as a very like you know like a very important holy thing, and here he says you've ordained yourselves by killing your brother or your sister who is not on Yahweh's side, um, and by doing that, you've brought a blessing on yourselves. It just seems very not what you would expect and the next day Moses says to the people you sinned a great sin um, but now I'll go up to the Lord perhaps I can make atonement for your sin so Moses returns to God and says you know this people has sinned a great sin they have made for themselves gods of gold but now if you will only forgive their sin uh, but if not blot me out of the book that you've written But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which have I spoken to you. See, my my angel shall go in front of you. Nevertheless, when the day comes for punishment, I will punish them for their sin. And then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. That's kind of how that story ends. Moses goes back up to make atonement for the sin. And... He also says, you know, if you won't forgive them, take me instead. Mm. Um, which puts Moses in a different light than you would have him right after he said, I'm going to kill 3,000 people out of anger. Yeah. There's like, I feel like that you can't really, like, you can be angry with him, but at the same time understand that he's also like, I'm not happy with what happened. And I don't know if he feels guilt or what's happening here, but he also says, you know, forgive them. And if you won't forgive them for the sin, then take me, blot me out of the book so you, they can, they can be in it. And, you know, God says, you know, I'll, I'll whoever has sinned against me, those are the people who I'm going to blot out. I'm going to be fair about this. <laughs> And mm-hmm. he does. He's mm-hmm. not. He's not like I'm gonna put it all on you or or put it all on anyone else or Aaron or anyone. 
everyone has what's coming to them essentially. And then go lead the people to where they're supposed to go. My angel is going in front of you. He's leading you. And nevertheless, when the day comes for punishment, I'll punish them for their sin. And then um, God sends a plague on them. And that seems to be the punishment uh, from what I can understand for what happened. The, the Lord sends a plague on the people because they made the calf. And then uh, my Bible adds a little note at the end, the one that Aaron made. <laughs> How uh, funny. <laughs> it's just, I think it's funny because it's like, it's the one that, you know, remember Aaron said he didn't actually make it. Yeah, that. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah, God, God knows. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's kind of a, a funny way to remind you that Aaron has removed himself from the equation of the, the casting of the calf. But so this is, it's a very kind of, there's this tension in this story of God just, one, God just made a, a, a promise, a covenant. He's created, he's entered into a covenant relationship with these people. Number two, these people break one of the like commandment number what one or two Mm -hmm. um, in creating this calf Aaron who is later to be high priest or understood to be a high priest is actually the guy who makes the mold for the calf Um, the people seem to be confused as to who God really is whether he needs this calf or not and God understands this calf as a complete idol worship. It's not even related to him. Even though Aaron says, oh, we're celebrating a festival to Yahweh, the, you know, our God, um, by doing this. And then we have Moses commanding people to kill, which is in direct opposition to one of the, the fourth, what is it? Not the fourth, the sixth commandment, Correct. Thou shalt not mm-hmm. kill. He mm-hmm. actually commands people to kill. And these people that kill are the Levites who are actually to be uh, later to be serving in the tabernacle in the worship of Yahweh. And he says, by doing this thing, you've actually ordained yourselves and brought upon yourselves blessing. There's like, there's a lot of like contradicting, contradicting like information, not information, but contradicting events happening around this story that just i think you you would think that after having the ten commandments everything is clear everyone knows what to do and what not to do and everything's gonna be peachy because like they literally just made this agreement you know maybe a couple months before yeah and then you realize that even though god's given them specific instructions they do not follow them. And also there is confusion about who God is or who God isn't. And it's just so much messier than I would like, than anyone would like. It's just not a great story, in my opinion, but it's a very real mm. story. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of things that you could pick up from the story and say, God is unfair. See, God is impulsive and irrational. Then you get a little bit of hope with Moses. Uh, And then Moses lets you down, everybody down, because he goes on and just throws down the tablets, breaks them in a fit of rage, and commands people to kill others in their own camp. 
Yeah. And you could say, see, people are stupid and they're dumb and they're going to go against God's rules, even if they themselves are God's chosen leaders. And I'm just not even going to put my faith in that because look how horrible it is that this story is here and we believe in this God. It's just, there's just so much here. And I wonder how someone like, I mean, I know how I, I know that I, I understand that I can't fully make peace with a lot of those thoughts in my modern day mind. Mm. But I also understand that this stuff is ancient and I don't completely understand exactly what happened. I just, we just, we just have this story and I take from it like, so these concepts of God, I do believe that throughout history or through scripture, we get a developing understanding of who God is that maybe isn't as clear at the very beginning, but slowly God continues to reveal who he is to people. Um, we just talked about how God didn't reveal his name until Moses' day, which is right, right after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I feel like through these stories, there's like a thread that we need to follow. But this is a story that many people struggle with. People who are atheists uh, will sometimes refer to this one just to say, <laughs> you know, you say God is good, but he wants to destroy his people. Like, what the heck? You know, this is why I don't believe in this God. Yeah. Or you, you say that the people that follow God are good. And like, look what Moses did. Like, he says, God, don't do it. And I'll, he goes down and does it himself. Like, what was the point of that? You know? Um, and like, I think all of those thoughts are valid. I just think that we need to like, maybe sit with it for a moment and be understanding that this sorts of, this sort of tension happens, happens in scripture a lot more than we would like to admit. Yeah. Um, I think I think it's like important to note that this story is mainly shocking in light of what we know today. I mean, they didn't <laughs> they didn't they barely had a concept of 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 God, much less Jesus Christ. Um so for you and me, this is like bonkers. <laughs> like within their culture and their time frame, I don't really know if they were shocked by anything that happened when Moses commanded to kill these people. I, I think I think it's I, also I, fair to say that Moses was not probably did not have as much. I know that Moses spoke to God and all these things, but if you think about it, it hasn't really been that long since they left Egypt. It hasn't. So Moses is also going through this, you know, this developing understanding of who God is. He's this, this relationship that's being built. So Moses is not perfect. We know Moses is definitely not perfect from day one. Well, I think we should state from the get-go that uh, from here on out, every every Bible character, every Bible uh, quote-unquote hero that we talk about is going to be uh, imperfect at best, corrupt at most. <laughs> I, like all yeah, of them. Like yeah, the I, whole, the whole, yeah. 
I think it's important to remember, and I think someone's mentioned this, and recently we've been going through this a lot. I think as a society where we like look at someone that we've that we thought of as a hero in the past, and we learn certain things about them that are you know less than flattering, and we're like, see this person did this and this and this, and so we got to get rid of them, and like, yeah, it's uh, cancel culture. Yeah, and. And we're really bad about it. We're really like zealots about it now. Like we're in a society now where ev- everyone is a little zealot and it's like they'll they'll find one thing in your past that's bad. And of course, everyone has one, if not many things. And it's like, that's it. Like if it's found, you're gone. So when you have that kind of a culture and then you look back at the bible which is very open with these people's character flaws it 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 can be difficult if you're in that mindset where it's like people have to be a very peculiar way in order for them to be role models or or leaders or or have any influence yeah so and i think that's what i was referring to like it's uh it's very easy to to do that with the Bible, but I think we need to remember that these people are human beings, and even the Bible itself is a human product. Mm. Um, so when you also hold the Bible to those, you know, to those standards, I guess I could call it, or to that judgment, like you also have to remember, like human beings wrote wrote this thing, like as inspired as it might be, it's still human beings who are very flawed and have the capability of misunderstanding or misrepresenting God. Yeah. Even when we want to do something good. Um, we see Moses, you know, being willing to kill people in order to do something good. And that's just like very human, a very human thing for him to do. It's not a good thing, but I think human beings do a lot of bad things in order in their minds to do something good. Yeah, and this is a this is a very good example of that. So this is just this is this is the story, and I I still it still doesn't sit well with me. Um, it just it just kind of doesn't. But which is why why it's interesting that there is a story in the New Testament that kind of <sighs> reminds me of of this story in Exodus a lot. And that kind of seems to, I don't know, in my perspective, maybe redeems it a little bit. And it's the story of Jesus's transfiguration. I don't know if you remember this story, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it's it's a very popular in in the Gospels. It's way, definitely more popular than the story we just talked about in Exodus because everybody feels uncomfortable about it. But there's this this story in Matthew chapter 17 and there are definite parallels between it and maybe it's just me who's reading into it. I don't know, but this is what it makes me think of. Uh, Matthew 17 verse one says six days later, Jesus took with him, Peter and James and his brother, John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. If you remember in Exodus, we have Moses taking uh, 70, 73 people with him, right? Right. Um, up the mountain and they have this, uh, they see, they all see God, right? And that's 
that's a really important thing. They they all see God, and um, then after some time, uh, God says to Moses, "Come up to me on the mountain, and I'll I'll come down there and give you instructions." So Moses goes up with. Uh, I always want to call him Jason, <laughs> Joshua, uh, and they go up to the mountain and they see the glory of God up on the mountain. It's a devouring fire and anyone it's in the sight of all the people and, and Moses enters the cloud and he's in the mountain in the cloud uh, and he's there for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, there is this thing that happens also in the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, where instead of Moses, Jesus goes up with Peter, James, and John, uh, and Jesus is transfigured before them. And his face shines like the sun. His clothes become dazzling white. And suddenly there appears to them Moses and Elijah, and Peter says to Jesus, you know, let's, it's good for us to be up here, you know? Like... <laughs> This is a pretty awesome experience we're having. Like, if you want, you know, we'll make three little huts here for you. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. There's a connection there with Moses, obviously. Moses is there. And while he's still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadows them. Just made me think of that cloud that Moses goes up into. There's, right. He's covered by the mount, it, by the cloud up on the mountain in God's presence. And from the cloud, a voice speaks and he says, this is my son, the beloved, which with, with him I am well pleased. And he says, listen to him. And then the disciples heard this, they fall to the ground and they are overcome by fear. Uh, but Jesus comes and touches them and he's like, don't, you know, get up, don't be afraid. And they look up and they see no one there except for Jesus himself. It's just like this. Right, like revealing of who Jesus actually is that happens on the mountain, and as it happens, like they they actually see, like Jesus's actual uh, nature. I guess I can call it like he he shines bright like the sun. They're like mm. blinded by it. Uh, we get the fire on top of Mount Sinai. They're enshrouded by a cloud. Same thing happens here. And there's a voice that speaks out of the cloud and mountains. Same thing in Exodus when God speaks to the people. And there's a revelation of who God truly is. And there's also this, 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 uh, con like this confusion about who he might be. Mm. And it is the same thing that's happening. Um, and when God speaks in the mountain, all the people are terrified and they're like, we don't want to hear this. You go up there, Moses, and talk to God. We don't want to hear it. Like we're terrified by it. And God speaks out of the mountain. And I just, you know, the disciples are like freaking out and they fall to the ground and they're overcome by fear. Um, I don't know what's happening. I don't know if like, Peter and the other guys are like, you know, this is good for us. We need to stay up here. This is awesome. Let's build something for you. <laughs> uh, there's this misunderstanding about what's happening. Like, let's build this golden calf. Um, and they're automatically corrected by God. And he says, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Listen to this, the son of man. Uh, this, this, this son, the beloved, um, he's the one I'm pleased with. And Jesus, 
instead of like Moses coming down and being like overcome by anger or by what they might have suggested, he says, get up and don't be afraid. But then they also come down the mountain and Jesus tells them, you know, don't, don't tell anyone what happened until I've risen from the dead. Disciples are like trying to figure out what he's talking about. They're talked about Elijah. Like what was, what was that about? He tells them who Elijah is supposed to be connects him with John the Baptist, but they're coming down the mountain and then there's a crowd that they, when they come down, meets them and, and a man comes to him and to Jesus, he kneels before him. He says, Lord, have mercy on my son. He's an epileptic and he suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. And Jesus answers, you faithless and perverse generation. How much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebukes the demon and it comes out of him and the boy is cured. And the disciples came to Jesus privately and say, you know, why couldn't we cast that out? And he says, because of your little faith. For truly, I tell you, if you have faith the size of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there and it'll move and nothing will be impossible for you. And again, it's just kind of like this parallel of like Moses comes down a mountain and he is disappointed and he is angry and he's frustrated with the people and Jesus comes down the mountain, you know, and he is frustrated and he's upset. And he says, you faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? Like how, like, like he's like, I'm running out of patience essentially, which is the same thing that happens with Moses. But, Jesus does not lash out, but rather uses it as a moment to teach, which is what Moses had been sent to do with the tablets. Do you see the parallel there or is it just me? (laughs) It just seems like that's what is happening here. I want to tell you why I really like that story because I, I understand why you told it, but I, and actually, I mean, we might be on the same page, but you had mentioned that the story of Moses and the tablets didn't sit well with you. Nope. Uh, Here's the thing. I, I don't think it sits well with God either. Like, I don't think it sat well with Moses I don't think it's that well with Aaron. Like, I don't, I don't think that story is meant to sit well with anyone. Because you said some interesting things, and that's that the people didn't really know who this God was. And they were frustrated. And they're like, I, we don't, we don't understand how to even move. Like, we don't even understand how communication works. And, and God is like frustrated with them. There is creation. And he's like, I don't, I'm losing patience for these people. And it's, it's, it's interesting, even as I say that, because these people are not his intended creation but this is what they are now after, yeah. after sin Works in progress. Yeah. After sin, I mean, they, 
they were supposed to be made in the image of God. And then when they, you know, did what they did, that image changed. And now you have this God who doesn't, who sees these people and they're not, they're not in the exact image he made them to be. And they're trying to look at him and they're not fully understanding him. And there's, there's this gap. Mm. There's this gap and it frustrates everyone. And everyone's just pissed because they're like, how do I meet you halfway? And we have like a little crappy tent. Like that's the best we got. Yeah. And so that story you told is pretty cool because the solution is genius because the answer is you make, you make a being who is part God and part us. And he's literally the only being who is a bridge. Like he fills that gap. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he can, he can come down the mountain and see what he sees and he can see it as God but he can also see it as a man. And so his wrath does not take him over. He still feels the emotion, but I think he understands both sides. And then like that, that peace, that mending can be found. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think the answer to this dilemma in the Old Testament is literally found in that New Testament story. Like, I think that Old Testament story is supposed to be somewhat frustrating because it just is. And it, it's the nature of God human relationships. It, it's frustrating at times. And the whole system the things that'll be frustrating and things that will be good. But you're right. It's not till Jesus story that we have something that makes sense. There's a, that the combination that joining the, the restoration of that. I feel like that type of story is, is found here. Cause it's like, it is, it is, it is this human being who is also God. That's what this story is about, the transfiguration. Yeah. You know? And as a being who is both, he's able to handle the anger, the frustration, and also counter it with, you know, teaching and compassion. It's just, it's fascinating because it's like, even now, I mean, we, we, we're very aware of the new Testament, but in reading the old Testament, I think sometimes we still fall into this, this idea that we can understand the Testament and, and make peace with it only within itself. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, but you, you sometimes can't like we, we, I'm, uh huh. Yeah, no, I'm just, you know, I'm very aware that the, this, I'm very aware that 
people uh, in the first century in Jesus' day don't have the New Testament to make sense of this. Right. They only have the Old Testament. So I'm very aware that we're bringing to it a, a post, you know, yes. uh, perspective, which is for us incredibly helpful. And this is why I'm referencing the story with Jesus. It's a good story. Yeah. That's yeah. the right story to bring up here. Um, and it, it makes sense. You know, it makes sense why even like in Jesus' time, like some of the believers were like, oh, let's, let's burn the non-believers with fire. Let's kill them. That's, that's what we did in Moses' day, right? Like, that's what you're about. That's what this is. And he's like, no, that story, that story frustrated me. I don't, I'm, I'm here so we don't have to repeat that story. I, it almost feels like Jesus is here to correct the misconceptions or misunderstandings of God's character that people have had up until that day. And maybe even people have today. Mm. So I think if you're going to take that story at face value and apply whatever cancel culture values to it and say, like, we got to throw everything out, like throw out the baby with the bathwater kind of thing. Uh, this, you also have to then consider this story, which is different yet similar at the same time. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, Jesus counteracts or counters a lot of those things that we might say that just doesn't make any sense at all. We're going to throw it out the window. Mm. Somehow mm. it's restorative and redeeming in a way where it's like, you know, we understand that Jesus came to teach himself um, what God is like. Mm. And he wouldn't have had to do that if people had not misunderstood what God was like. And I think we naturally or not naturally but we very easily misunderstand misrepresent and misinterpret who god is and uh i think that's the amazing thing about just reading what jesus taught because it's very much you know yes like i didn't come to abolish the law i actually came to fulfill it like i actually came to dig in deeper to show you what it really means you know right like I'm actually coming in to dig in deeper to the stories to show you what really should have been understood through that experience. Uh, not throwing it out, but rather digging out the true value and meaning of things. And I think that's, what's redeeming about this. I like that. And since, since we're on this note, seeing as how we're only into Exodus, is that right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. We're, we're like barely made a dent. Um, okay. We're only into Exodus. Uh, this is, this is only going to keep happening. Um, this, this situation of, of something terrible and awful and heartbreaking and possibly seemingly contradictory to Christianity. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's the whole, it's just going to keep happening. So I think, I think as we move on, it's probably important for us to reference some of the new Testament as we go through the old Testament, just to make book. That's how I've made peace with just it. Just to make bookends meet, you know, cause, cause the answer to the old is sometimes found in the new 
with this whole thing. So otherwise, be skeptical. Otherwise, be skeptical yeah, yeah. Of your own cancel culture judgments. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's more here than meets the eye. Essentially, like there, there always is. So, anyway, I think. Uh, is there anything you want to close with, or? No, I think that's pretty good. Yeah. So I, I know this is probably going to be one of the longest ones, longer, longer episodes, but it's one that deals with something that's very a common and when you actually read the Bible and pay attention. So um, I hope it's helpful and uh, I hope it's been uh, enlightening in some ways. And I'm sure Brian and I will probably have more questions about this than the answers in the future, but uh, <laughs> um, it's just yeah. it's just something that we have to continually do. So mm-hmm. anyway. Thanks for joining, and we'll see you again in a, what did you call it, prophetic week? Oh, a week and a half, and a time, w- and a half a time, and a half an hour. <laughs> we All haven't right, covered the concept of biblical time, so a lot of people might think we just sound dumb right Nuts. now. But <laughs> no, yeah, no. no, 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 sooner than later, we'll be yeah. back. Okay, bye. <laughs> bye. And that concludes our episode on the Golden Calf. As always, you can follow us on Instagram at Skeptic Disciple Podcast or find us on Twitter at Disciple Skeptic. We'll be posting updates there soon. Until then, have a great week. Adios, friends.